How should we respond when the pastor of the nation's largest United Methodist Church and an ex-Catholic priest team up to do a four-part series on Catholicism and Methodism? Welcome back to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer. As you've just heard, these two episodes are going to be unique. Instead of the usual format of interviewing a guest or talking a topic over with Chloe, my normal co-host, my guests, so to speak, are going to be Adam Hamilton, a baptized Catholic who's now the pastor of the Church of the Resurrection in Leawood, Kansas, uh, known around these parts as CORE, and Father Joe Torricci, a Dominican priest who left the church to become Methodist. Now, CORE has over 9,000 members, so it's sort of a flagship church for United Methodism, which is the largest mainline Protestant denomination in the country. And so the church put on this four-part series, each part is two hours, on Catholicism and Methodism. The last week was actually cut short because of a snowstorm. That's a whole other story. It's getting ridiculous. But the result was about seven hours of Methodist engagement with what they understood to be the similarities and differences between Catholicism and Methodism. So I'm trying to respond in these two episodes, each under an hour, (laughs) because there's only two weeks before Lent. There's a lot to get to, and I don't want this to become a Lenten series. So it means necessarily, though, that I'm not going to be able to address every point. Uh, But I don't know that that matters too much. For example... They get some of the historical details on the selling of indulgences wrong. But it's kind of like, who cares? The Council of Trent condemns the sale of indulgences. And I've never met a person who had that as their honest-to-goodness reason for being a Protestant. So my interest isn't in relitigating the 16th century, but instead in seeing why anyone is still a Protestant today. So to that end, I'm actually indebted to both Pastor Adam and Father Torricci uh, for sharing their stories and offering their perspectives. Now, Hamilton is known as Pastor Adam to his congregation, so I'm not being disrespectful if you hear me calling him that throughout the episode. Uh, Speaking of respect, I actually want to emphasize something that I'm not sure is going to be very well conveyed by the clips I've chosen. Uh, The two guys presenting their case for Methodism do so uh, with several gracious comments towards the Catholic Church. As I hope we'll get to see in the next episode, Adam has one of the best defenses of purgatory that I've actually heard anyone give. And he's a Protestant pastor giving it to correct the misunderstanding of it from a former Catholic priest, which is kind of a surreal moment, but I love that he's able to give this defense. So there really is uh, a lot to praise and a lot that they get right. I want to make that very clear at the outset, that I'm not just trying to attack them, just like they're not just trying to attack the Catholic Church. But it's maybe especially for this reason uh, that the falsehoods and errors, which sort of get blended in, uh, deserve to be respectfully called out. My guide for all of this is Acts 18, verse 24 to 26, which says that there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, who was an eloquent man and well-versed in the scriptures. It said he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, so he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. 
So that's a bit how I feel here. They've got a lot right, uh, and Adam in particular is very eloquent and seems well-versed in Scripture. But there's still some room in which he needs the way of God explained more accurately. So I'm hoping this can be one of the tools God uses to that end. Uh, and I will be sending this to Adam directly. But since his and Father Torricci's presentation on Catholicism was public, in front of hundreds of people and uh, aired online, it also seems right to have a public correction of the record, to hopefully keep the conversation going forward in a positive vein. Their position throughout these four weeks is basically that Catholicism and Methodism are both valid, so it doesn't matter a lot which one you choose. But here are the reasons that they chose Methodism. Now, while the core website listed as Catholicism and Methodism class, Father Torricci calls it something like Journeys and Stories, and his and Pastor Adam's conversion to Methodism makes up a big chunk of the first of the four weeks. So let's talk about those conversion stories first. Now, initially, I was very interested in Father Torricci's story about turning away from the Catholic Church. I guess on some level, I sort of expected that there'd be some kind of theological issue that he just couldn't stomach. And I was hoping to have a chance to respond to that here. In the first hour of the first episode, or the first week, is mostly dedicated to his story. Yet there didn't seem to be much of any theology in it. Honestly, it largely consisted of these long rambly, uh, self-congratulatory anecdotes like this. I began as an altar server in the third grade. That was the earliest they would take us to be orderly. <laughs> um, and I, I was an altar server and senior altar server until the age of 16. I was a junior usher. I was an assistant custodian. And an assistant lawnmower during the summer, all by the age of 14. Or this. Anyway, I got permission from my superiors to go to graduate school, and I was accepted at Michigan State. And it was an exciting era because Magic Johnson was there. Wow, I was there with Magic Johnson. I shook his hand, you know. But that was, the big, that was a big thing, you know, because he was the big man on campus. And he was a great, great, he is a great um, man and an and athlete. But there were some early hints about the real story might be. So, for example, here's how he introduces the story. Ministered as a Catholic priest for over 30 years. And how did I come to marry... A wonderful woman, beautiful, smart, most, one of the most caring persons I've known in my life. So notice that he doesn't say, how did I go from ministering for years as a Dominican to becoming a Methodist? He says, how did I go from being a Dominican to being married? That doesn't strike me as an insignificant detail. The implication, which seems to be validated by the rest of his story, is that it was just that. Uh, he falls for a divorced woman. He can't get married as a celibate priest, and even if he weren't a priest, he can't marry a divorcee without an annulment. So he just leaves the priesthood, leaves the church, and even leads her out of the church. It seems, at least from his telling, to be similar to the case of Father Albert Cudier, who some of you may remember as the, the priest who was nicknamed Father Oprah. He was very popular in Catholic media, especially Spanish-speaking media. 
good-looking guy who liked to put his face on books that he was hawking. Well, he turns out to have a girlfriend. He gets busted. And so he leaves the Catholic Church. And I'm pretty sure by the very next Sunday was an Anglican priest. When I heard about this, I remember thinking that if I were an Anglican, I would be humiliated. Because I viewed it as an insult that my church was viewed as the kind of place where guys could go if they couldn't keep their pants zipped. I mean, granted, that's sort of the history and origin of Anglicanism, but still, like, that's embarrassing. Now, I want to emphasize that this story, even though it seems to have a lot of similarities to that, has what appears to be one important difference. Father Tortorici doesn't describe having a physical relationship prior to leaving the priesthood. He just says that he had an inappropriate emotional relationship. So I actually tried to find out a little more about him, uh, doing a little research and asking around a little bit to find out about his time as a priest. And what I heard back is that he was, uh, quote, a true man of the 70s, end quote. Uh, I also heard that he was a nice enough guy, but you wouldn't agree with his theology. So he was apparently was politely called the dissenter. <laughs> but whatever his views on theology were or are or might have been, Theology doesn't appear to be what got him to leave the church. This wasn't some carefully reasoned, here I stand, I can do no other. This was a crush that got in the way of a vocation. In fact, his own telling of this story, I think, from anyone's perspective, ought to be a really sad one. I'm going to let him tell it in his own words. He's describing his last seven years as an active priest. And his assignment at the time was the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., so here's what he says of it. But during that seven years, I had an old demon come back um, called depression, which I had when I was a student in theology. And, and uh, that depression came back, and I realized how lonely I was as part of depression. Um, but I was really also questioning um, what I was doing, things that were going on in the Catholic Church at that moment, time. And I realized also that I had a great friend, um, Carolyn. She was a true friend, a colleague. We wrote research together. And I realized that I really fell, I was falling for this woman, and I really fell in love with her. And she was on my heart all the time. And I was feeling that conflict, like anyone would, you know? You just say, okay, what are you doing, you know? So I can I recognize that I reached a moment that I didn't know which way I wanted to go. So he gets depressed. He feels lonely. He starts to have doubts. And then he either gets inappropriately attached to a female companion or else realizes he's already gotten too attached. That's awful, and I'm truly sorry that the church wasn't able to help him more. Although it's clear from his own telling that genuine efforts were made getting him into counseling and such. Either way, though, that's just a bad conversion story. I mean, it's why St. Ignatius of Loyola warns against making important life changes in a place of desolation. The kinds of decisions that we make in that place are typically not good for us. A good chunk of this first week is spent giving a sort of whitewashed and legendary version of Luther's life. We see this in the second week as well. There's this critical point where the church is trying to get him to recant, and Luther, according to this telling, stands up boldly and says, 
Here I stand, I can do no other. Now, that probably didn't really happen. The first accounts of it are from after Luther's death. We have actual texts from the meeting in which he allegedly says this, and there's no record of him actually saying it. But it's at least clear why that part was made up. Because we're attracted to men of principle, those willing to give up everything for the sake of the truth, or at least for their understanding of the truth. Consider a real-life case like Dr. Scott Hahn, or to take a Methodist to Catholic example, uh, Dr. Alan Cease, whose conversion story we'll include in the show notes. These are Protestant pastors who became convinced of the truth of the Catholic Church. They gave up everything, even their ministry, to follow Christ into his church. But these two stories, both Father Tortorici and Adam Hamilton's, are the opposite of this. They aren't able to be Catholic and have the job they want, so they give up on Catholicism. Both of their stories ultimately come down to the fact that it's more convenient to be a Methodist than to be Catholic. Now, we just saw this with Father Tortorici's turning away from Catholicism. Pastor Adams is actually a little more complex, because he was never particularly Catholic to begin with, despite having been baptized Catholic and having a little exposure to it as a kid. His father was Catholic, his mother was Protestant, neither were serious about going to church, his Protestant mother resisted his Catholic grandmother's attempt to form him in his Catholic faith. Eventually, he ends up being led to Christ in a personal way. And that's, as an aside, a pretty cool part of the story, as you might guess. But then he's got to figure out, well, what now? He feels called to be in pastoral ministry. But he's, at the time, in an anti-intellectual Pentecostal church and is annoyed with their inability and refusal to answer difficult theological questions. That leads him to this point. And so I thought, okay, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. Where do I fit? Well, I was baptized Catholic. Maybe I'm supposed to be a Catholic priest. But I'd made a terrible career decision getting married the week after high school graduation <laughs> if I was going to be a Catholic priest. <laughs> I tell you that to say that, I, that had I not been married, I might be a Catholic priest today. I mean, I, I, you know, I had a deep love for the church that was my grandmother's church and for her deep faith in Christ. And there were some questions I would have had with the Catholic church, but, but there was a lot I loved about that too. And uh, so I ended up looking at, well, what if not a Catholic priest? And, you know, you were a Methodist for five years. I wonder what they believe. So he looks into Methodism, likes the emphasis on the head and the heart, and goes that direction. Now, I get the line of thinking he's describing here. He feels like he's got a calling to ministry. It's a gift from God. Why give it up? And I want to affirm that Adam clearly has tremendous God-given talent. And I think he really is trying to use those gifts for Christ. My wife was listening while I was listening into these episodes, and she joked that I needed to turn him off or she'd become Methodist just to hear him preach. Unironically, I think that's a major reason a lot of Catholics leave to go to core. He is a dynamic speaker. But I'm reminded here of the apostles in Luke 5. So Jesus had just performed the miraculous catch of fish, and he says, come, follow me. And Luke says that they leave behind everything, meaning that they even leave behind the gifts they just got, these, these fish that they just miraculously caught. So it's ultimately about following Christ wherever he wants to take you, not about using the gifts he's given you in the way you want. I want to stress that I'm saying this from a place of personal conviction. I wanted to be a priest, was initially convinced that God was calling me to that. And the realization that he wasn't was hard. It wasn't clear to me why I felt led to become an attorney first and then led to get so close to ordination to the diaconate and the priesthood, only to feel 
like I was being led away from not one, but two areas in which I felt a natural affinity. So I'm not asking of Adam or of Father Tortorici to do anything that God hasn't already asked me to do, which is to leave behind an area I might feel naturally very happy. But God's led me to use the gifts that he's given me in other ways, in ways I could never have predicted. And I'm confident uh, that he would do the same for Adam if he let him. I also want to mention here that I'm not saying Adam is intentionally saying no to God. I'm just saying I was married and wanted to be a minister is a lousy reason to reject the church Christ founded. In fact, I think that both of these stories ultimately, properly understood, undermine both men's credibility when they're making theological arguments. Because throughout these four weeks, they present the Methodist side of things. But it's largely because, by their own telling, they basically arbitrarily chose to play on the Methodist team. If they hadn't been married, in Pastor Adam's case, or wanted to marry a divorcee, in Father Tortorici's case, they might just as well be arguing the Catholic side. Their motivations, as they describe them, aren't because they were drawn to the truth, but because it was more convenient. So that's enough on the personal conversions, and I hope that doesn't come off as any kind of personal attack. I don't mean it to be. I mean it to say, these journeys and stories, it's good to examine what's really motivating someone to hold um, the positions that they're holding. But they do talk a lot about theology for the other six hours. And so I think it's worth talking about some of the particular theological issues on which we disagree. And of those, again, there are several, I'm trying to respond to basically seven hours worth of material in about an hour and a half, two hours. I want to cover a couple issues thoroughly instead of all of those issues badly. Now, I think that the single most important difference is on their theology of the church, what's called ecclesiology. Adam is super clear that they're not saying that Roman Catholics aren't Christians. They just don't think that we're the one true church. They also don't think that Methodists have everything right. They don't think anybody has it right. And they seem to think that we're arrogant for thinking we do have it right. Adam says, And so one of the things that I've appreciated um, really, you know, in, in this tradition, the Methodist tradition, is just the sense of, we don't think we're the best church. We don't think we're the only church. We don't think we're right about everything. And one of the things that he takes Catholics and Orthodox and even other Protestants to task for is thinking that they are right, that their teachings reflect those of Jesus Christ. This is how Catholics would look at the church. The Roman Catholic Church would say, we have held on to the church faithfully from the very beginning. And there have been groups that broke off as heretics. And then in the year 1054, our Eastern brothers and sisters broke away and they became heretics themselves, left the true church. These are the Orthodox churches. And then in 1517, all those Protestants left the church. But we are holding on to the true gospel. Let me show you how Protestants look at this. Protestants would say there's Jesus back here, and the, true, the church remained faithful for some time and then gradually began to wander away. In the east, they began to wander this way, and in the west, they began to wander this way. And, and somewhere out of the west, Martin Luther figured out, you know what, we got this all wrong, and he came back, and he got it right. And so the Protestants are here, and we've got it right, and we've gone all the way back to the beginning. And we've managed to have, you know, the church as it was really meant to be. And, and of course, there were other Protestants who came along, like the the Baptists came along, the Anabaptists came along, they said, you know, Luther didn't get it quite right, and so we're going to finally get it quite right, and we're going to take you back to the beginning. And then there were the, you know, the Luther, the uh, Calvinists, and they said the same thing, and, the, and there were the Pentecostals who came along much later, and, 
And they said, no, 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 you all got it. Not quite right. We're going to take you all the way back to the beginning. So, you know, so many of these churches have said they formed because they were saying, the rest of you didn't get it right. And so we're going to take you back to the beginning. We're going to take you back to the apostles, except for the Orthodox and the Catholic churches who have said, we're holding on to the great tradition of the church through the ages. Now, at this point, both men and several members of the audience sort of laugh at the idea that anyone could have Christianity all right. But it's ultimately laughing at the idea that anyone could actually know what Jesus meant to teach, which is not, in the end, insulting to Catholics or Orthodox as much as it's insulting to Christ. And this point is what my old friend Brian Cross, who blogs at Called to Communion, calls ecclesial deism. I'll put a link to his essay on it in the show notes. Now, deism, you may be familiar with it, it's the position that there's a God who created the universe, but he winds it up like a watchmaker and then he lets it go. Now, in that view, all religion is man's upward reach for God. And so the idea that any religion has it all right is ridiculous. The Christian response to this is, you're right, if religion was just man's upward reach for God, it would be ridiculous to assume that any one of us is totally successful at that. But God doesn't abandon his people. And his revelation, especially the incarnation, is God's downward reach for man. His full self-revelation is in Jesus Christ. So when it comes to the church, Protestants, strangely enough, take the deist side of the argument. Christ winds up the church and then sort of lets it go. And so they think it's arrogant to assume that any of us have it right. But again, that's just assuming that the church is man's upward reach for God. Instead, listen to the words of Matthew 16, 18, in which Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's an important passage when we talk about the papacy. But for now, just focus on this. Jesus won't just wind the church up. He's promising the gates of hell will never prevail. So any Protestant theory that says the church started out right, but then it went off course, meaning that it went from the truth of Christ into error, ultimately denies this teaching of Christ. And Jesus makes this clear over and over again, especially at the Last Supper. In John 14, verses 16 to 18, he promises that the Father will send the Holy Spirit, who he calls the Spirit of Truth, to be with his followers forever. And then he says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Tied to this is the promise in verse 26 of that same chapter. That the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then a little while later in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So the church has promised repeatedly the ongoing indwelling of the Holy Trinity, including the Holy Spirit's guidance of the church into the fullness of truth. The idea that the church has the fullness of truth isn't arrogant, it's just basic Christianity. Now, I anticipate that Adam would respond to this by saying that the church Jesus founded isn't the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, but just the Christian Church understood as some vague collection of believers. Just people who follow Jesus, whatever that looks like. For example, he says, Jesus comes along, he doesn't say anything about Orthodox and Catholic and Protestant. He just says, come and follow me. But, you know, our natural tendency is to think that we have the truth and somebody else might not have it. But here's the problem. That's not all Jesus says. He doesn't just say, follow me. He says, I will build my church. 
And then in John 17, verse 20 to 23, he calls for his disciples, including those not yet born, to all be one as he is with the Father. Now, Adam interprets this to mean that we shouldn't let doctrinal differences get in the way of our unity. But Christ clearly means so much more than that. Because Christ's relationship with the Father isn't, hey, we disagree, but at least we're family. It's a total union of will, the sort of unity that's utterly impossible for us to do on our own, which is why Christ prays to the Father for it. It's not unity at the expense of truth or truth at the expense of unity. It's unity in the truth. And remember, he praises at the same Last Supper, where he's just promised the Holy Spirit's perpetual presence in the church, leading her into all truth. So Christian unity always included belief in particular doctrinal content. And this is clearest, I think, when we look at the early Christian creeds. Ironically, Adam does a really good job, I think, of showing this towards the end of the second week's talk. So the earliest Christian creed, um, that is the earliest statement of what Christians believe, is found in Romans 10, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your, with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So creeds date back to Scripture itself, to the New Testament. And they develop throughout the history of the church. Adam makes a really good point that the Christian fish, the one you often see on car bumpers, is actually a sort of creed. In Greek, it was an epigram. Uh, the word in Greek for fish, if you take each of the first letters, it stood for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, which is a nice, pithy way of affirming Jesus is both human and divine. It's expounding the theological content of Scripture, not just saying, follow Jesus in a generic way. And then, of course, this is developed in a major way through the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And Adam walks through all of that. So in other words, at no point, at no point in the history of Christianity, from the Apostles down to the Reformation and even beyond, did Christians ever just say, hey, just follow Jesus. Even the heretics were smarter than this before the Reformation. They'd say everyone should be Montanus or Pelagian or whatever. We'd say they should all be Catholic. But nobody just shrugged and said, be whatever, just follow Jesus. Because it doesn't mean a whole lot to say you're following Jesus or you believe Jesus if you don't know who Jesus is or what his message is or what his teachings are. You need to know what it is you allegedly believe to know whether or not you believe it. And that's where creeds come in. So you just can't take Jesus seriously and not take doctrine seriously. And you can't take Jesus seriously and not take the church seriously. This becomes very clear in the last creed that Adam gets to, the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed developed in part in response to the heresies, as, as Joe was describing them for us. Uh, there were people who began to believe things that were a little different than what the church was believing. And, and the church was trying to clarify, what do we believe? And so somebody would say, well, we don't necessarily buy the part that Jesus was God, or we think he was only God and he wasn't human. There were some heretics who said he was a divine being, but he couldn't be flesh because flesh is evil. And so there were some who believed that. And so there were different you know, times where people were preaching different things. And the church is trying to clarify and say, wait a minute, no, we don't think that's right. Let's talk about that. Let's put our heads together about that. Now, how does that line up with Scripture? And, and they would finally, you know, the Nicene Creed comes out of a council in 325 where the bishops of the church come together and they say, let's clarify this. And they wrote the short version of the Nicene Creed. Uh, they continue to wrestle with things. Other people continue to, to debate and question some of these things. And by 381, in the city of Constantinople, they create the final version of the Nicene Creed. What's fascinating about this to me is that Adam is pro-Nicene Creed, although he chooses not to have it prayed at his services. Now, as an aside, I find it utterly bizarre 
that a Protestant pastor has the power to permit or forbid a creed developed by two ecumenical councils. And I'm pretty positive that the early church would have been equally aghast at this idea. The crucial thing here isn't that. Instead, he's pro-Nicene Creed, and the Nicene Creed doesn't just affirm the truth about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It also says we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That's a problem for Protestants. Adam tries to confront this head-on by kind of explaining away the meaning of the creed. When you see the word Catholic in the creeds, a lot of our Methodists will say, wait a minute, I thought you said we believe this, but it says Catholic Church. I believe in the Methodist Church. No, we just believe in the church. And the word Catholic was an adjective in the Greek, and it meant the church everywhere. All the people who called upon the name of Jesus, and we are part of that one church. This claim is just utterly false. I mean, he's already mentioned that the Council of Nicaea was formed at a pair of ecumenical councils that were gatherings of bishops. So that should already tell you that their conception of the church was of a visible hierarchical church, not just the set of anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. But the Council of Nicaea could scarcely have been clearer on what it meant by the Catholic and Apostolic Church. So again, it's two councils. Let's start with the first Council of Nicaea. In Canon 8 of the Council, it says, and I quote, Concerning those who call themselves Cathari, if they come over to the Catholic and Apostolic Church, the Great and Holy Synod decrees that they who are ordained should continue as they are in the clergy. But it is before all things necessary that they should profess in writing that they will observe and follow the dogmas of the Catholic and Apostolic Church. End quote. Now, a little bit of explanation about this. The Cathari are also known as the Novatians. They're a schismatic group that set up their own antipope who was ordaining people without permission from the actual pope. But because he was validly ordained as a bishop, they couldn't deny the validity of the ordinations. This is what's called a valid but illicit ordination. So they recognized the baptisms of these folks. They even recognized their ordinations, but said they still needed to, quote, come over to the Catholic and Apostolic Church, end quote. And then they list particular teachings not included in the creed that they'd have to affirm. For example, the church's power to restore lapsed Christians into communion following a period of penance, and describing this teaching as one of, and again I quote, the dogmas of the Catholic Church. Now, as Adam says, the creed isn't finalized at First Nicaea. It's actually finalized at the First Council of Constantinople. Well, let's look at that council. In Canon 5, they say... Those who, from heresy, turn to orthodoxy, and to the portion of those who are being saved, we receive according to the following method and custom. Okay, then it lists several heretical groups, and it says, We receive upon their giving a written renunciation, and anathematize every heresy which is not in accordance with the holy, catholic, and apostolic church of God. Thereupon, they are first sealed, or anointed, with the holy oil upon the forehead, eyes, nostrils, mouth, and ears, and when we seal them, we say, the seal of the gift of the Holy Ghost, end quote. So for this first group of heretics to join the Catholic Church, they just need to repent, reject every one of their errors, and receive the sacrament of confirmation. But then the canon goes on to talk about other heretics who have either sketchy or non-Trinitarian baptisms. That's my wording, not theirs. And says that they are received as heretics. And it describes the process this way, quote, on the first day, we make them Christians. On the second, catechumens. On the third, we exercise them by breathing thrice in their face and ears. And thus, we instruct them and oblige them to spend some time in the church and to hear the scriptures. And then, we baptize them. 
end quote. So there's a lot going on there that's going to be relevant later on. But for now, just notice that the First Council of Nicaea and the First Council of Constantinople define what the one holy Catholic and apostolic church is. They explain it's a visible church that one can be received into, that has dogmas beyond just those listed in the creed, that has exorcisms and confirmations and penance and ordination and bishops with specific jurisdiction of particular cities. They have set processes for receiving heretical and schismatic Christians back into this one church. This is quite literally the opposite of saying that every follower of Jesus is a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So anytime you hear a Protestant talking about how they affirm the Nicene Creed, you've just got to call them on this because it's ridiculous doublespeak. You can't affirm a creed while changing the meaning to the literal opposite of how its writers defined those terms. I mean, it'd be like if the Orthodox Church made a decree that says, we're the Orthodox Church. And I said, oh, I affirm this because the Catholic Church is Orthodox. It would be ridiculous. It's clearly not what the authors intended it to say. And it's not respectful uh, to the makers of the creed to pervert it into something that's the opposite of what they're trying to express. As Adam explains, creed comes from the word credo, what we believe. So to believe the opposite and say that you believe the same thing is just not true. It's, it's not honest. It's beneath the dignity, I think, of Christians, whether Catholic or Protestant. But while we're on the subject of ecclesiology, which again is the theology of the church, I think we should go ahead and look at what I think is maybe the most obvious distinction between Catholics and Protestants, the papacy. Here, I've got a confession to make. I'm a fan of true crime shows and of detective stories and things. So when I hear about the historical debate over the papacy, the Catholic case and in my mind, it's like the person who says, I couldn't have committed the crime. I was at work the entire time. That kind of alibi is great for prosecutors if the person is guilty. Because to discredit it, they just got to show some evidence that you left work at some point and you're shown to be lying. So Protestants really have a great advantage in this debate. Because the Catholic claim here is huge. I mean, after all, we say Christ himself founded the papacy upon St. Peter and then it was passed on from St. Peter to Linus and Cletus and Clement and Sixtus all the way down the line until Pope Francis today. Of course, if that's true, everyone should be Catholic. But if it's not true, no one should be Catholic. That's what the stakes are. This is, if you can get this issue right, the other issues all fall in line. And the Protestant claim is simply that Christ didn't found the papacy, that it arose later in history. Very clear division, very clear distinction. It's wonderful. So all you have to do as a Protestant is to show when the Catholic Church either broke away from the church that Christ founded, or else show when the papacy was invented, or else show some point in which there clearly wasn't a papacy, and you'll discredited the whole thing. So I want to emphasize, that's a really low bar. I mean, we can do it in, in reverse. If you were to say, oh, Methodism has always existed, we could easily show, no, Methodism was invented by John Wesley. He was aided by his brother Charles Wesley, as well as by George Whitfield. And although they started as members of the Anglican Church, their disobedience, and particularly uh, John Wesley's decision to ordain his own ministers over and against the protestations of the Anglican Bishop of London in 1784, ended up leading to a strain that resulted in a full-on schism from the Anglican Church in 1795. The history is very clear, right? So it's not too high of a bar to say who was the first Catholic Pope if it wasn't Peter. We're just asking you the same question you would ask us. 
Like, where did our church come from, if not from Christ himself? In fact, this is exactly the kind of argument that the earliest Christians used. Now, Adam mentions St. Jerome to try to support the Protestant version of the Bible, but it's worth listening to what St. Jerome actually has to say on the subject of whether or not we should be Catholic. Quote, We ought to remain in that church, which was founded by the apostles and continues to this day. If you ever hear of any that are called Christians taking their name not from the Lord Jesus Christ, but from some other, for instance, Marcionites, Valencians, men of the mountain or of the plain, you may be sure that you have there not the Church of Christ, but the synagogue of Antichrist. For the fact that they took their rise after the foundation of the Church is proof that they are those whose coming the Apostle foretold. And let them not flatter themselves if they think they have Scripture authority for their assertions since the devil himself quoted scripture. And the essence of the scriptures is not the letter, but the meaning. Otherwise, if we follow the letter, we too can concoct a new dogma and assert that such persons as wear shoes and have two coats must not be received into the church. End quote. So by Jerome's argument, if we can trace Methodism to its founder, check, and its founder isn't Christ, check, then it's not the true church. Now, Adam complains elsewhere that he feels like we Catholics don't treat Methodists like full brothers and sisters. But, I mean, here's Jerome, who he cites favorably, describing groups like the Methodists as synagogues of the Antichrist. And saying basically, like, sola scriptura, or just saying your own private interpretation of scripture isn't good enough. You have to be part of the church founded by Christ. Now, all of that operates within this idea that the papacy actually is founded by Christ. We see this in Jerome's letters to the Pope, for example. So that's, of course, exactly the question that Protestants have to rebut. If it's not Christ founding the church on Peter, what is it? And here we get treated to, I think, a really strange kind of reimagining of church history from Father Tortorici. We have this guy called Constantine, or Constantine. He's emperor of the western part of the Roman Empire, and when he became emperor and he embraced the Christians and made them legitimate and stopped all of the persecution against the early Christians, um, he said, I'm the Pope. Really, he called himself Pontifex Maximus. And he took on saying, well, if all the religions in the empire are under my control, so aren't these Christians. He started bossing everyone around, all the bishops, calling the councils, dictating policies, dictating teachings and theology. Didn't know any, but, um, but the thing was, he got in the way of some of the growth of the early church. But a smart man named Ambrose, one of the fathers of the church, he said, enough of this. Who appointed him the head of the church? He appointed himself. So there was a big fracture there in which Leo put it all together because he was smart and he was really log logical in his thinking. And he put a little package together of thinking that says, the Pope, as office holder of the the, as Bishop of Rome, in the footsteps of Peter, Peter was, if you would, anointed by Jesus, appointed. 
because it was from Jesus that the Pope receives his calling and his office, makes him over the emperor. And that was told to Constantine that he wasn't the boss anymore of the Christian community. And he said, well, I've got to find myself someplace else to lord over. So he went to Constantinople. He went to the east and founded the city of Constantinople um, and left the Church of the West to the bishops. (laughs) Now, perhaps no figure in history subject to more historical claptrap, shall we say, than the Emperor Constantine. Almost everything you've heard about Constantine is probably wrong. And basically everything Father Tortorici says here is just completely untrue historically. Now, quick aside, I should mention that Father Tortorici, in his life story that he gave before, mentioned that while he was in seminary, he was more interested in political movements like the civil rights movement than he was in studying theology. That's apparent here. I don't mean that as a knock in any way against the civil rights movement, only to say that theology is more important than any political movement, even a very good one. So especially to any seminarians listening, let me stress, take your theology seriously and study hard because you probably won't have that kind of opportunity again. You're going to be expected to represent the Catholic faith to people, Catholics and especially non-Catholics, who seem to think of every priest as an official spokesman of the church who can be trusted completely. And so if you don't take your theology and your church history seriously, you'll be doing a huge disservice. This is really a recurring theme. I don't want to pick on Father Tortorici too much, but he gets basic things about the church wrong. He doesn't understand indulgences. He doesn't understand purgatory. Uh, He doesn't know that the Nicene Creed is prayed every Sunday at Mass. I mean, it's just kind of a baffling level of historical ignorance or even basic knowledge of the Catholic Church, especially from a priest. But let's talk specifically here about his position on Constantine and why it's historical nonsense. We're running a little short on time, so let me just make five basic points. Number one, the title Pontifus Maximus was an old Roman title. It wasn't something Constantine stole from the church. It wasn't him claiming to be the head of the church. Rather, the church took the title and intentionally applied it to the pope, since it's a better description of the papacy than it is of the Roman emperor. We see this with other words like gospel, which was originally a Roman word that is somewhat ironically reappropriated in Mark's gospel. That's a whole other issue, but this isn't Constantine giving himself a church title. Two, Constantine never dictated policies and teaching in the church. Instead, he calls the First Council of Nicaea, but that's because he's aware that there needed to be more Christian unity, and he recognized that he wasn't a bishop or a theologian. He wasn't even a baptized Christian yet until shortly before he died. So the idea that he thought he was the head of the church is ridiculous. What he was was rich and powerful. So he paid for the bishops to come and do their thing at the ecumenical council because he recognized it would be good for the empire. Number three, Constantine dies in 337. That's the same year that St. Ambrose is born. And Ambrose doesn't become bishop until 374. So no, There was never any schism between the Roman emperor and a newborn baby Ambrose. Historically, this would be a bit like claiming Robert E. Lee was a major player in the American Revolution. It's the kind of thing that gets you laughed out of the room by anyone who knows what they're talking about. For it is true that Constantine moves the capital of the empire to Constantinople in 330, but this wasn't because of any of the reasons he said. He'd begun the building of that city in 324. He'd been looking for a place to have a capital in the east. That's a year before he calls the First Council of Nicaea. So he doesn't move there because baby Ambrose or somebody else deposed him as head of the church. 
Rather, the move to the east is generally agreed because it's, he had just conquered the eastern half of the Roman Empire. The city of Constantinople was in a military strategic position, so much so that the city remained unconquered for over a thousand years. That has nothing to do uh, with some bishop you know, talking back to Constantine and he gets embarrassed and abandons the capital of his empire. Number five. Pope Leo the Great wasn't responding to some controversy between Constantine and baby Ambrose or anything of the sort. The event that I think Father Tortorici is half remembering here is from 451, over 100 years after Constantine's death. And in that case, in what's called the Tome of Leo, the Pope is settling a theological dispute in the East between Patriarch Flavian of Constantinople and one of his priests, a priest named Eutyches. Now, frankly, the fact that both sides in this controversy in Constantinople wrote not to the Patriarch, they didn't try to settle it in-house, but they wrote to the Pope in Rome, it shows that there wasn't any serious question about who's the final authority in the church, both East and West. You don't see someone having a problem with the Bishop of Rome and the Pope writes to the Patriarch of Constantinople and says, will you fix this for me? Will you solve this? So very clearly, the Pope is the Pope. Leo's not just claiming some power to himself. The Patriarch is reaching out to him. So is his own priest, Eutyches. Now, Leo actually tells Flavian to excommunicate Eutyches, which he does. So those are the big five reasons. But frankly, whenever anyone starts telling you that such and such happened in the church or exists in the church because of Constantine, be suspicious. Because almost invariably, they've got no idea what they're talking about. At another point in this series, they play a clip about church history that suggests that maybe Constantine just claimed to have had a religious conversion or to have seen a miraculous sign in the sky as a crafty religious political move because he thought the Roman religion was too divisive and wanted something more unified. Historically, this is rubbish. It's, it's the opposite of the truth. As the calling of the First Council of Nicaea shows, there's a lot of disunity within the church. In contrast, the Roman religion had a real live-and-let-live attitude. It isn't like, oh, you worship Mars and I worship Venus, we're going to have a, a fight now. And so you look in vain to find major religious wars between the different religious groups in the Roman Empire. And what's more, the emperor was considered a god. So the idea that as a political move, you're going to renounce your claim to be a god and join a religion that until a few years ago was illegal in your empire and then try to impose that on everyone, that this is somehow going to be good for gaining support of the empire that you've just conquered, it doesn't really make any sense. So that's their Tortorici's position, and then the position of the church history video that they show at the beginning of week two. Adam's position makes a little more sense, uh, but that's largely because he's really vague on all of the important details. So he starts off by claiming that even the office of bishop used to look pretty different, but he doesn't really clarify exactly what that means. Uh, and, he, and then he says eventually, and he doesn't specify when, that this changed. So here's his theory. The reason why the papacy becomes, or you know, the, the leader of the church becomes the bishop of Rome is in part because all roads lead to Rome and Rome is the most powerful city in the Roman Empire. And so mm -hmm. uh, at one point, the bishops of each city are equal, but the bishop of Rome is a little more equal. And it's easy to understand how that happens. In the United Methodist Church, this is the largest United Methodist Church in the United States. And so, you know, people give deference to Church of the Resurrection and a lot of people know about us. And that's how it was in Rome. The Bishop of Rome was well known across the empire. And so there was a little more deference given. He had more people who he was shepherding in that particular, you know, in that city versus anywhere else, except Constantinople. Yes. And in Constantinople, mm -hmm. 
the bishop over there, who was called a patriarch, wasn't always very fond of the fact that the bishop in Rome got special <laughs> deference, right? So I've got no idea what point in history he's trying to describe here. What point in history, for example, Constantinople is speaking a different language than Rome, but Rome's still the capital of the Roman Empire. I mean, there, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. It would be like saying at the point when JFK was leading the 13 colonies, like these historical things, it's not that they're not true. It's that they don't all happen at the same time. And they're kind of melded together into this really inaccurate picture. So let's pick these things apart a little bit. And again, I, I can't do this as much justice as I would like to. It's not true that Rome was just so crucially important for most of the church's history because it was the capital of the empire. I mean, as we just heard from Father Tortorici, kind of, uh, within a few years of Christianity's legalization, the empire is moved over into Constantinople. And this had actually happened earlier under Diocletians, even before Christianity was legalized. The capital of the Roman Empire had moved once during the period of what's called the Tetrarchy. So it's not just true that, well, Rome's the capital, so we'll give it more deference. But I actually really like uh, that Adams brought up the example of his own church, Church of the Resurrection, because it lets us kind of analyze this theory. So let's give it its due. It is true that the bishops of major cities, what are sometimes called metropolitans, uh, were treated and even are treated with a certain amount of deference. They also have uh, important regional authority. So Canon 6 of the First Council of Nicaea talks about this in terms of the bishops of Alexandria and Antioch. And it explicitly talks about how they're modeling this off of kind of the Roman jurisdiction, meaning the Church of Rome already has a, a juridical system that pre-exists the Council of Nicaea. But the Bishop of Rome very clearly isn't just an important metropolitan, just taking care of the smaller diocese in his territory. Remember the example of Patriarch Flavian and Eutyches in 451? They're all the way over in Constantinople on the eastern end of the empire, the city that's allegedly always in tension with Rome. So no, from the very beginning, well before Nicaea, we see that the Bishop of Rome has a sort of universal jurisdiction and authority. And I'd point to three pieces of evidence well before Nicaea that point to this. Number one, Pope St. Clement, the third pope, a man ordained by St. Peter personally, writes to the Corinthians to settle an internal dispute in that church. Why is that significant? Well, first, it's in the east, not anywhere near Rome. Second, it's in a church that was established by St. Paul personally. We see him writing, obviously, first and second Corinthians there. Yet, these Corinthians don't consider themselves equal to the apostolic see, Rome. Third, Clement is writing in A.D. 96. So it's clear the Corinthians have written to the Pope to settle this. He tells, he says at the beginning that he's writing in response to their, their request. So they've written to him rather than to the Apostle John, who is still alive. So that's an enormous proof of the papacy. Second, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who is a disciple of the Apostle John, writes to the Church of Rome and refers to them in his letter as presiding in love over the whole church. That's quite a bit further than the simple respect that they're allegedly just showing. And that's about A.D. 107. And third, uh, Pope Victor, who's Pope from A.D. 189 to 199, excommunicates a huge chunk of the eastern half of the church because of their refusal to use the Roman dating of Easter. And he's ultimately vindicated at the First Council of Nicaea when they really reaffirm and establish this should be the standard dating of Easter throughout the entire church. 
Now, think about the example Pastor Adam gave, where he compared the Bishop of Rome to himself within United Methodism. So I'll let him correct me on this if I'm totally off base, but I highly doubt that he's getting involved in internal disputes at Methodist churches on the other side of the country, let alone on the other side of the known world. I doubt that anyone refers to him as presiding over Methodism in love, and I really doubt that he's personally ex excommunicating huge swaths of other Methodist churches because they won't follow you know, his calendar. So I, again, I really like the analogy that he draws because I think comparing the early papacy to Core shows how incredibly different they were. Well, granting that Core doesn't currently look very much like the papacy ever did, let's imagine for a second, what would it take for Adam to become the Pope of Methodism? Uh, remember earlier how I mentioned that I like detective stories and such? There's this great scene in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, Silver Blaze, in which Sherlock Holmes, he's talking to a detective of Scotland Yard. And the detective asked him, is there any other point to which you would wish to draw my attention? Holmes says, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. The dog did nothing in the nighttime, says the detective, to which Holmes replies, that was the curious incident. In other words, had the thief they're looking for been a stranger, the dog would have barked. His lack of barking is a clue. It, it says something. So if Adam were to declare himself Pope and start ordering Methodist churches around, you think they might, I don't know, say something about it? You think they might put up some objection? The dog would bark, in other words. So the Protestants trying to confirm this kind of theory of a gradual emergence of the papacy should be able to find loads of barking dogs throughout history. I mean, these are the bishops who are going from equal with Rome to less than equal. So you'd imagine that they, at any rate, would have something to say about it. But even Constantinople, Adam mentions, doesn't deny Rome's primacy over the church, so much as they try to ride Rome's coattails. Uh, another event from 451 is the Council of Chalcedon. This is where the Tome of Leo, which I talked about earlier, was read to the entire council, and they, they cheered and said, Peter has spoken, <laughs> which is an incredible you know, affirmation declaration of the papacy. Well, also there, the Eastern bishops tried to get Constantinople to an almost equal status with Rome. They explained that, quote, reasonably judging that the city which is honored by the imperial power and senate and enjoying privileges equaling older imperial Rome should also be elevated to her level in ecclesiastical affairs and take second place after her, end quote. So even when you get this kind of imperial ambition from Constantinople, there's still some recognition that they can't actually claim to be above Rome. Now, this is what's sometimes called Canon 28 of the Council of Chalcedon, but it's something of a misnomer because it's actually rejected by the Pope. So one very final point on this, just kind of tying this together with the earlier points about the seven ecumenical councils. So they refer to the seven ecumenical councils. It's clear that for some reason, Adam seems to think these councils have an important standing within Christian orthodoxy, whether it's because they're councils or because they happen to be right. I'm not entirely clear on, but he gives them some sort of weight, some sort of merit, and that's good. But there's also something about that that strikes me as a little incoherent, uh, contradictory, if you will. If you say, I accept the first seven ecumenical councils, then the question becomes, how do you know which ones those are? I'm sure that question seems absurd at first. You're thinking, well, the first seven, just count them. But it gets trickier than that. There's one in particular that seems to fit the bill, but isn't included on the list. This is what 
is called, according to its fans, the Second Council of Ephesus in 449. And it's directly opposed to, or really opposed by, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. It tries to affirm heretical Christology. It tries to affirm false things about the natures of Christ. Obviously, that's a problem. More to the point, it's convoked by the emperor. It's attended by 130 bishops. So if you're just looking at the external trappings, it appears at first blush to have everything it needs, with one exception. Now, maybe you've guessed what that exception is. It's rejected from the outset by the Pope. Pope Leo labels it the robber council and makes it very clear that the Catholic Church will not be accepting it as an ecumenical council. And so, the Council of Chalcedon is called two years later and affirms the truth. Now, this puts people who affirm councils but reject the papacy in a weird position. They have to either say, a council's only a council, with the acceptance of the Catholic Pope, which is awkward for obvious reasons, or I only accept church councils that I happen to agree with. But of course, that doesn't really work either, because if you only accept church councils you happen to agree with, it kind of defeats the purpose of a church council. As Adam mentioned earlier, these councils are called to combat heresies by saying, no, this is what the church stands for. If you're going to be a member of the church, you have to believe these things. And so the bishops and priests who didn't believe those things would be deposed and they would lose office. And they would, you know, there were real consequences. It wasn't just, if you happen to agree, sign here or reword this in your own words or change the meaning of the words as it suits you. No, it, quite the opposite of this. There, the point of a creed is to say, this is the position of the church. And if it's going to have any authority, it has to have authority, not just because you might happen to agree with it. So the only, and I want to stress this, the only coherent way to know which ones are the real and which ones are the robber or false councils in the church is whether or not the Pope in Rome accepted them. As a historical fact, I invite you to check me on this. That's true. That seems like a good segue to recap some of the major themes as we close. Adam and Father Tortorici present Catholicism and Methodism as basically two acceptable options. As if Christ is just indifferent about the structure or teachings of the church that he founded. When presenting the church in this way, they're directly opposed to the First Council of Nicaea, to the First Council of Constantinople, to a number of church fathers from even earlier than that, all of whom collectively present the church as visible and the Bishop of Rome as having a special authority that goes beyond simply honor. I think this is going to be the crucial question of whether we should be Catholic or Methodist. Did Christ found a visible church? Does that church have the Pope at the head of it? Everything else is details. With that, let's close in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.